You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The APN is currently looking for network sponsors. Hear your company right here at the beginning of the show in over 60 episodes a month on 18 different shows and reach 70,000 subscribers. Contact the APN via chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. That's chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com to sponsor the only archaeology education and outreach podcast network. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 113 for June 21st, 2017. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we discuss why you shouldn't pick up arrowheads when you find them and, as an archaeologist, how to tell people without pissing them off. So get ready to do some outreach because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. All right, welcome to the show, everybody. Joining me today are Stephen in Calgary and Richie Cruz, who is right here in the studio in Reno. And let me preface this by saying, as I'm editing this show, I lost the entire first segment. <laughs> so um, I have the second segment and the third segment with Stephen and Richie, but I lost the entire first segment because I'm experimenting with some new recording techniques and it didn't work out. So instead of getting them together and recording the first segment over again, I'm going to kind of paraphrase what we talked about a little bit and just kind of set up because really the meat of the argument and the meat of the um, discussion that we had was in the second and third segment. So let me start because what we intended for the entire episode was addressing a blog post that I had written back on April 30th, 2013 on the Random Acts of Science blog. And that's going to be linked in the show notes, but it's at digtech-llc.com forward slash blog forward slash 172 and then some of other stuff. So Anyway, take a look in the show notes and you'll see the link to this. But it's blog post number 172 called An Open Letter to Arrowhead Hunters. And the basic gist of this thing is that I was I wrote a blog post and um, I live in Nevada now. And there's a lot of people I talk to that say when they were kids or, you know, when they were um, when they're out hunting or, um, you know, hiking or camping or whatever. And they see stuff on the ground that they just pick it up. They just pick it up and they go to town. So. And they don't really see that 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 is, um, you know, something wrong. So I wrote a blog post about why you shouldn't pick up artifacts. You know, what are the reasons for that? And of course, I mentioned some laws and some of the gaudies and, you know, there's there's those factors. But people either don't know those or don't understand those or don't care about those one or the other. The biggest arguments I hear towards why you should pick up artifacts from people that do is that they feel like they can better appreciate the artifact and the history if they own it and they can show other people rather than if they, um, you know, just have it hanging out. Um, if they just, uh, have the artifact and, and leave it on the ground and then nobody else can see it. So that's a valid argument, I think. Um, but the thing is, if we come out there and then record, and by we, I mean, archeologists, if we come out there and then try to record, a site that used to have that artifact on it, then we can't tell a whole lot about that site after that artifact is gone. Um, it's all about context, right? You can show me this fancy, pretty artifact all you want, but if I can't tell where it came from, if I can't see where it came from, then it's actually no good to me. You know, I can say, well, typically these date to this time period. Okay, big deal. What's the story? What's the story is it telling? It's telling no story when I tell that. So... This blog post, again, I was, uh, I was a little angry and I probably should have written it a little differently, but this was, you know, four years ago. So, um, but I, I talked about artifact collecting and metal detecting. Um, and then I ended with how archaeologists can help. And, and really, 
that's the, the part that still sticks. And it's all about education. It's all about archaeologists telling their friends and family and anyone they can come in contact with that this is what you should do if you find an artifact. Okay. This is what you do if you should, if you find anything really uh, in the ground and, and, and how you can go about that. So take a look at that blog post. Um, more importantly, take a look at the comments. I received some comments initially, which I, uh, me and a, a few other people actually responded to. And I am still receiving comments. I was receiving comments just a month ago um, on this blog post. And people are mostly people are mostly pissed. They're mostly saying, you know, uh, one guy here says Crimea River. He says that all that can be learned from Indian Airheads has already been learned. Um, archaeologists want it both ways. Show me an archaeologist who doesn't festoon his house with dug up treasures. Um, I don't know a single archaeologist that does that. Uh, some people... Some people might be able to to keep things or collect things that are being deaccessioned or something like that from a from a museum, or uh, maybe the site's being destroyed and they just rescued some stuff out of there. That's that's the case too. But I don't know a single archaeologist that would pull something out of context, something that's not being cataloged, something that's not being um, you know properly documented, and then and then just keep it. I, I don't understand that. I don't know any archaeologist that do that. And part of the reason is because we understand that those aren't our, our artifacts. They're not our artifacts to own. Okay, they're nobodies. Uh, Native American groups would probably disagree with that. They would say that you know it's theirs, it's their ancestors. Um, but that's a that's a stickier argument, and I tend to agree with them, uh, quite frankly. So, but I honestly also don't think that it's it's okay for them to pick up stuff. <laughs> you know, I mean, we need to learn from these things. Uh, as much as anybody else. And I think the more important thing to do is to tell the story about where the artifacts came from. So I'm going to cut this short because I can't recreate the conversation that we had. But when we come back in segment two, we were getting into a discussion of context. I had Stephen um, pretty much kick it off. And, uh, and we discussed because we'd started getting into at the end of segment one, but really didn't dive into it about how important context really is. Context in the in the in reference to artifacts and and how that's important, why that's important and why that's more important than the actual artifact itself. So again, apologies for this weird little segment one, but uh, stay, stay tuned for segment two and segment three, because we had some, um, we actually had some good audio because Richie was here in the studio and we had two good microphones and then we had Steven uh, coming through on Skype. So it's something I hope to continue in the future. All right, that's it for segment one. Here's a quick note about the ARC 365 podcast. Pay attention to that if you would. And uh, we'll be back for segment two in just a second. Hey, podcast fans, check out the ARC 365 podcast at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365. That's A-R-C-H 365 for your daily dose of archaeology. Each episode is less than 15 minutes long, and we have some great guests recording about awesome archaeology. We also try to throw in some definitions and basic archaeological information. So check out the 365 Days of Archaeology podcast only in 2017 at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365 today. Find us also on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Music by typing ARC365 into the search. Now back to the show. Uh, yeah, well, you know, we were, we were talking about, like, um, context and, and you know, for how th this, this is our major heart, right? It, it, it's all about the context. It's not really about the things. It's, it's um, although, you know, frankly, we, we all really like finding things as well but um but but really it's you know like you know past a certain point most of us are like oh cool narrowhead okay done 
Um, and, and, and really, you know, like we keep saying that, you know, it's, it's all about the context. It's all about the context. It's where it's located. It's the association between, you know, it and other things at that site. So, like, are all the projectile points pointing the same way? Mm-hmm. Are they, you know, like, kind of pointed in random, seemingly random directions? Are they all in one part of the site? Are they, you know, how, how does that relate? And, and you know, if you go back to... Was it an archaeology show? The, the the one that you did with the mm-hmm. with the Harris Matrix. Uh, yeah, that was on archaeology show. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, I would recommend you go go and listen to that because you know that whole part is about recording those relationships um, in, in the context of uh, artifacts and, and stuff like that. Um, but it, it you know to put it in a broader, more public viewpoint. Um, that they were talking about is I, I tend to enjoy watching uh, t- detective shows, um, not necessarily procedurals, but de- you know just generic or, or um, the type of detective shows that you see on like uh, Masterpiece Mystery or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and and uh, as far as the contextual relationships of evidence, uh, a lot of times that really gets fuzzed over. So. You know, you'll be watching the show and like Miss um, Fisher, you know, picks up a piece of evidence at a crime scene, stuffs it in her pocket. And, and then 20 minutes later in the episode, you know, like hands it over to the, you know, the uh, detective. Uh, uh, I think his name is Jack. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, like the entire time, you know, us, the audience should be screaming at the TV. It's like, holy fuck, she just destroyed the case because like you know, like all the whole providence of evidence is gone mm-hmm. sitting in her, sitting in her purse. And the only reason that the, the cops are like, Oh, well this, this cinches is that, you know, they essentially believe her word. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not evidence. Um, and, 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 you know, regardless, and it's like, it, you know, the cops can't even do that. Mm-hmm. You know, the cops, when they're going in, they're doing all their, you know, uh, crime scene recording, they're, they're putting down little, you know, colored cones and they're taking a ton of photographs and recordings and making notes and, 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 you know, recording the relationships between the evidence as well as they can, because if they don't, there's no case. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they have very, you know, like it weakens the case when they're making the making their argument in, in court. And, and that's where it kind of falls down to, you know, com- comes back to archaeology, is that it's like, wow, an Elko point. Cool. Where'd you find <laughs> it? What's it associated with? You know, a, a crime scene is probably the best analogy I've ever heard for why you shouldn't pick stuff up in the field. Because people don't think about that. What we're doing is we're recording... 5,000-year-old crime scenes. I mean, yeah. I don't want to say crime scene, <laughs> but... Um, well, yeah, but we're recording activities that happen at places and we're re- mm-hmm. reconstructing events and behaviors. So we um, kind of just need a bones for um, archaeology. Yeah, kind of. Or law and order or anything, you know? I mean, you look at... Uh, take law and order as an example, because um, that's a pretty common one in the United States that people can understand, even though there's a, a British one I found out, uh, law uh-huh. and order UK. It's in, like, its seventh season. Yeah. Which seasons don't mean a whole lot in UK, so I'm not sure how many years that means. But um, anyway, it's uh, 
I mean, nearly every episode has something to do with some sort of, you know, they do the first half of the episode is the case and the last half is often the the um, the court case. So the first half is the detective side and the second half is the lawyer side. And nearly every time something gets thrown out, some piece of evidence gets thrown out because it was improperly collected. It was improperly, you know, something was bad in the chain of evidence, like like Stephen was saying. And um the chain of custody and uh, or something or it was, you know, improperly, you know, collected or something like that. And we all that's something everybody, I think, can relate to um, just because of TV, um, you know, and, and all the shows out there. We all know that the minute something gets disturbed like that, I mean, even even if you get in a car accident, you know, people are reluctant to move their cars because they're like, well, if I move this, the police are not going to see that it was your fault and not my fault, you know, something like that. Um and the police don't care because most of the highways say, hey, if you're not hurt, move your car to the side of the road because you're both getting cited. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, so it's something we're very familiar with, but we don't apply it to history. We don't think we can learn anything from that context, but somehow we think we can learn something from the context of a bullet casing being here and not there, you know, something like that. But we can't learn anything from a projectile point being here and not there. When in reality, a projectile point is a bullet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's the same thing. It's just earlier. <laughs> so... Well, it's um, like when I was in Carson doing that survey, I found like um part of an abalone shell in Carson City, which um is very, very far from the ocean. Mm-hmm. But if someone had just picked it up, it's like, oh, pretty, mm-hmm. pretty thing. You know, we wouldn't have known that. Yeah. And the first thing you know is somebody brought this here. Yeah. And why? Yeah. And who? Yeah. Well, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Well, you try to find those things, you know, but you, you, you find something like that, like finding a bead out here too. Yeah. yeah. They didn't make beads out here. They got them from California, so they traded for them. So if you see a bead, and there's whole chronologies and and uh, you know type areas for beads and and the kind of beads they are, what kind of shell were they made from, things like that. Um, you know, we can tell a lot just from a single bead being found on a on an archaeological site in Nevada, uh, simply because they they're not from here. So um, and that's important. But I, I love the. Again, I love the crime scene analogy. It's just, uh, it's really, it's really perfect. And I want to, it'd be really nice to try to figure out how we can do that. I'm already envisioning some sort of public archaeology outreach, Stephen. We should develop this. And uh, where you, you show people, not just kids too, everything's focused around kids. And I understand that, but it's the adults that are out there telling their kids to pick this stuff up. <laughs> so See? it has to come from the parents. But I, I'm imagining an archaeological site where you can you can have as a display in like a park or something like that. They're prehistoric artifacts. They're not tin cans and things like that, which I'll get to in a <laughs> second, but they're prehistoric artifacts. And you put up the little the little cones with the numbers, you know, like you see on a crime scene, the little, you know, one, two, three, four, and you put up a caution tape around it and put these things up so people start associating the fact that that archaeological site, while not a crime scene necessarily, could be, um, is should be treated as one, should be yeah. treated like one because those things in association with, you, with each other are just are more important. So um, I, I glossed over tin cans because... It's one thing Richie and I were talking about earlier. Um, I I totally understand the the desire to pick up some of that stuff because sometimes, unlike prehistoric sites where things are typically, you know, sometimes they're dropped where they were just they, where they were left and they're not moved again, things like that. But with historic stuff, you don't often you don't sometimes find it, especially here in Nevada. You find canned dumps, you find refuse dumps, so it's clear that somebody either emptied out their garage when grandpa died or something like that and just went out in the desert and dumped this stuff in a pile that's an archaeological site for us Mm. 
more I feel like more what we find is we just add to the the information because we we actually know I feel like we know a lot less about some of the bottle um, the bottle types and cans and stuff out there because sometimes these manufacturers only did a certain technique yeah. or were only in existence for you know sometimes less than a year yeah. so when they do that we don't actually have a really decent record of some of this stuff. So um, it's really important for archaeologists when we find a dump like this, even though it's just a dump, we know it's a dump. We know we're not going <laughs> to find anything out about context in that area. But the stuff in association with each other, that we can tell some stuff about. So if we find a maker's mark on a bottle that we don't see, we can't find in a book anywhere, we don't know anything about it, maybe it's new. Maybe it's you know something that's so rare that nobody's ever seen it, or there's very few of them. We can tell some stuff about it because we know the 10 things around it. We know what those are. We know when those date to. They date from 1931 to 1935, which if the whole can dump dates to that time frame, then this odd thing that we're now putting in a paper for other people to see probably dates to that same time period, you know, so we can start building a case for it based on yeah, association. Uh, just to jump back a little bit, uh, I, I, like your, I like your idea of, of doing that, you know, like uh, – trying to bring it into the crime scene in mm -hmm. the past and make you know making that making that argument um a little bit more but i i feel like and, and maybe this is just a byproduct of the current political climate um that a lot of people don't understand um evidence and argument mm -hmm. um, and, and that, frankly I, i'm not sure we understand it we we really <laughs> Um, you know, thinking about my education and, and, you know, the conversations I've had with, you know, my coworkers and stuff like that, um, and also on this podcast, that I'm not sure that we're given the, the, the formal education for, you know, like making arguments, mm -hmm. it, it, which is weird, you know, when you consider that, you know, really that's a major portion of like your method and theory class or course or should be, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, th there are some books that are explicitly trying to, you know, talk about archaeology as far as like critical thinking, but, you know, discussions on, you know, logic and, and, uh, you know, how, how to make an argument. Um, I, mm -hmm. I think those are, uh, really, uh, um, you know, n not really emphasized in, in our education. And I think that, uh, we we would really benefit from that. Um, and uh, to tie this back into an earlier podcast, um, we had a, a guest ooh, a few months ago. Uh, mm -hmm. And and oh yeah, it was, it was about the uh, um, uh, so, someone you knew who had uh, done some of the forensic stuff in uh, Southeast Asia, I think, for the military. Oh, right. Yeah. Joe Griffin. Yeah. yeah he'd yeah, done the, yeah. the Vietnam veteran thing or POW, MIA guys. Yeah. Oh, and, and that dude. I had the one question that totally, you know, totally bombed um, where, where <laughs> I'm like, so, you know, like, because he's emphasizing that really this is a forensic thing. And so, you know, like standard archaeology, you know, did not apply. And so my question was, so did you learn anything that's going to benefit, you know, standard archaeology? And he was like, no. <laughs> you know right because that's what i was getting at it's like you know I, i'm really curious what goes on um as far as from like a forensic uh standpoint 
and, mm-hmm. and you know, um, the legal basis of, you know, evidence and um, argument, you know, what goes on that we could benefit from when we're trying to make our cases um, to, you know, the various regulators or to the SHPO or, you know, whoever the reviewer is. Um, or, or mm-hmm. you know, to peer review, like, you know, what is a good argument? What is a bad argument? How do you need to treat that evidence to make those cases? Yeah. And that's that's such a good point, too, um, that we're not taught that because you're right. We're taught a lot of this. We are taught a lot of theory. We're taught a lot of um, sort of high level concepts, even as an undergrad. And, um, you know, it, it's really more focusing on interpretation rather than data gathering because I and I don't know why that is. I think maybe universities just assume that when you get out into the field, you'll learn how to do that. And it's not as important. You know, I mean, there are. There are method classes for archaeology. That's that's for sure. I took mm-hmm. one in uh, in college, but I think one of the more beneficial classes I took, and I didn't even realize it until this discussion, is I took um, forensic uh, forensic osteology. <laughs> now it was focused around bones and what we can tell about bones and things like that. But it really did. Now I'm, I'm realizing it really did give me a, a halfway decent framework um, for critically looking at something not just the object but the features on the object what it's in association with like we've been saying and things like that and really kind of understanding that um i mean obviously what helped more was you know watching law and order for most of my adult life but no i'm just kidding um but uh but yeah that's uh that's something that's definitely and i don't don't think we've ever even mentioned that before on this podcast which is crazy is you know we talk about schools and, and classwork all the time and we're getting to the point because we haven't done this in a long time where we need to interview another um, professor or um, graduate uh, school uh, coordinator for programs because we've done that in the past where we yeah. talk to them about what do you offer, what do you offer that's CRM mark related, but I don't think we've ever asked about sort of a kind of a forensic or analytical background to their courses. You know, we, we do focus on some CRM stuff, but not um, not like that. And that's a good question to ask. I'd like to see I'd like to see what schools are emphasizing that, if any. You know, Um, because a lot of times you see these analytical techniques, they're focused around like a lab methods class, Mm. not a field methods class. Field methods classes are sure they'll show you, you know, you need to you need to dig like this and do these things. But why? Why are we doing that? Why is that important? You know, not not just the how, but the why. Exactly. And and then you get out into the field in in a CRM setting and your supervisor is like, oh, we don't have to do it in the academic way. (laughs) <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> yeah. You know, like okay, I understand. You know, the need for speed and cost effectiveness, but at the same time, you know, just you know, it's a baby in bathwater thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like, what are we giving up, and why? And and I don't yeah. think there's any discussion so much as a lot of times the supervisor is just like, oh, thank God, we don't have to, we don't have to do that level of rigor. Right. Yeah. And we do, you know, we do, um, even when we're not doing the, the serious academic level, we are, we are typically approaching things um, systematically, and I would say scientifically in general, just with our, our testing processes, even our survey methodology and things like that. But where it all, and then, and then when we present that information, either in a report or in a paper at a conference or something like that, we include all of that analytical stuff. We say, just like a proper forensic scientist really should. You know, we say, oh, we did this. These were our methods. These were what we did. You know, this is our results and all that stuff. But then where it all breaks down, what this conversation is focused on is when we have those discussions with the public. We don't we don't talk to our friends and family or when we give a, a talk at an archaeological society or somewhere else and say, 
you know, we leave that stuff out because we're like, oh, that's boring. We don't want them to know that they're they're lay people. We, they're not going to understand it, right? So, <laughs> so let's just talk about how, oh, these Native Americans, they were doing this and this, and we yeah. know that because of these things, and we get into those kinds of things, but we don't. We leave out the discussion of the forensics that we didn't even know we were doing, and now the association with the public is just you know all the stuff that we were talking about, the museum type stuff and things like that, but not the real not the importance of the context. So, well, I was going to say, I think it's interesting going through all these comments. They almost all follow the same logic Yeah, that, um, archeologist, well, we keep all this stuff anyway. So why can't we keep it too? Like right. you guys keep it. And yet, how, I mean, yet, I mean, one comment specifically said how many archeologists line their houses with dug up treasures. It's like, <laughs> I don't have any. Do you have any? No, I don't have any. Other than so. that um, petrified wood that you carried for like 10 miles. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Which is legal to take, by the way. <laughs> in certain quantities, in certain places. Yeah, but I mean, it's like, they're, ugh. Yeah. It's like all the, they, ugh. Sorry, I'm just like going to get angry. <laughs> go, go, go ahead, Stephen. You'll take us out to break. Okay, um, I might take you to be the break. Uh, this actually is, is something... I very recently started thinking thinking about, and it Ooh. was at one of the digital uh, digital archaeology sessions, and I think it might have been the metadata session at the SAAs this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and it was uh, shoot, you know, and, uh, I'd have to look at my notes to see who said it, but um, someone made the excellent point that archaeological databases are kind of a misnomer because we don't really put data in it; we put we, we put interpretations in it. We put information mm-hmm. in it. Um, so that, you know, like, you know, our categories in, in the database are like Elko point and, and with some metrics. And it's like, well, what makes an Elko point? Not, mm-hmm. None of that's in there, right? Um, and, and, and so the actual data is not present. What, what's present is the information, the, the, the interpret, right. you know, you're already one level of interpretation down. And, I might have mentioned this on a previous episode. I, I don't. I don't remember. I don't remember either. Yeah. Um, I guess I've been harping on it too much. It's it's also <laughs> very uh, repetitive. Yeah. Uh, but so so, you know, what is you know where is the actual data? The actual data, you know, the reason that we have you know curation facilities, the reason we curate this stuff is that's our database. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're you're not necessarily recording contextual information, but you're definitely recording artifactual um, information and, mm-hmm. and actual data because we, anybody can go back and look at those particular flakes, those particular tools, those particular mm-hmm. things, and, and from the data make new interpretations. That, that, so like all of a sudden I had this realization that you know, curational facilities are actually giant physical databases. Uh. No, that's great. Um. <laughs> yeah, so, so, you know, and, 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 I mean, which is ridiculous because, I mean, how, how like, like you say, you know, how much field curation are we doing now? How much mm-hmm. uh, of these, you know, uh, you know, like how much are we trying to figure out how, how we don't have to keep physical things in a physical building where it's really expensive and getting mm-hmm. full and, you know, all, all the... Uh, <laughs> conundrums that you know the problems that go with having a curational facility yeah Uh, and 
but yeah. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so, the, the, you know, to go back to those comments, it's like, why can museums keep that stuff versus, yeah. you know, you know, like us, you know, or, you know, private citizens keeping it in their own homes is that if private citizens are keeping it in their own homes, that's a separate database. Mm-hmm. Huh. And, and, and yeah, sometimes you can all get together and look at each other's arrowheads and it's cool and fun. And, and, you know, like a lot of archeologists do this as, as a public thing, you know, show us what your collection is. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, you know, basically at, at that point, the database is fragmented um, with, you know, a huge amount of access issues. And, you know, if you're taking that perspective from like, you know, some sort of open access information, um, you know, that that's not necessarily there. Right. All right. Well, I, I have a comment on this too, but I will save it until after the break when we come back for our third segment in uh, just a minute. Back in a second. This episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast is made possible by Codify Incorporated. Codify is a California benefit corporation that can help you with your digital archaeological needs. Visit codify.com today to find out how Codify can help you go paperless in 2017. That's www.codify.com. Now back to the show. Okay, so we're back for our final segment. And, you know, something, Stephen, that you were saying uh, made me think about a recent episode we just recorded for the archaeology show uh, with Jeff Smith, who had a, he was co author on a recent article. In American Antiquity, about Great Basin sandals, and there were these sandals found in this cave. There's sandals found in lots of caves in uh, in the Great Basin, but something he that we actually talked about because he mentioned it in the article, which I think you bring up a good point on. Say that just to bring it back to Elko Corner Notch points, uh, we write that in the database versus writing down the attributes and then maybe in a comment saying this is an Elko you know projectile point, um, rather than just putting down the hard data. So. The, the problem we have with doing that is um, the problem we have with making that interpretation is like he said with the sandals, there's only four types, four known types and three primary types of sandals in the Great Basin noted, noted in the record for the last 11,000 years. <laughs> so, but he said he wasn't sure and, and I think he was quoting somebody else actually in the article that they weren't sure whether or not that was because of a really loose interpretation and definition of a couple of the different sandal types. Like it's a really broad definition of the sandal type rather than a, a more narrow one, which would create more types of sandals if they if they really narrowed it down. So um, most of these – now all these um, – a lot of times as archaeologists, we'll just take a look at a point and we'll say, oh, it's a this, right, yeah. without actually measuring it. But all of these points have um, – they do actually have, you know, a lot of metrics for their type their, – their type specimen does. There's a lot of metrics from – that you can measure with angles and all these different things um, with the shoulders and the, and, the, and the ears and all this other stuff and all these different angles. But there's also – um, those aren't hard numbers. Those are their ranges of numbers. Yeah. So, you know, if the point fits within that range, it's a this. If it fits in this other range, it's a this. And it's really, you know, the Native Americans weren't doing that. They were just making no. whatever, you know, culturally they know how to make and, and learn from. Although quick, what's a quick, what's the difference between Elko and a Rose Gate? <laughs> uh, size? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, but these, this is what we're talking about. These, these, these determinations, these names that we give these things are really more for us. And yeah. so we can keep it straight. Um, but realistically, we should be just recording 
you know, we should record the attribute data. And now, now that we have big data sources and we have the ability to do big analytics on stuff, I would love to see all these attributes just put into a system and then have a computer come back and say, all right, here's how this stuff all kind of relates to each other, you know, versus our anecdotal sort of visual assessment of these things. You know? Interesting. Almost like an archaeological version of those chat, those like chat bots you see people say are commenting <laughs> on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and, and, you know, I think we're getting we're getting close to being able to possibly do something like that with um, we did. We interviewed on the Architect podcast a little while back. Uh, Chris Cameron from Field Technologies Incorporated, and he's basically invented an AI um, that he's using for, well, it's actually kind of a Google AI, I think, that he's feeding projectile points that are, um, he's feeding the system projectile points from, from local areas that we have already typed, that we know the type of, and he's saying, this is an example of this, and he gives it hundreds of those examples, or as many as he can. That way, when you show it a picture of something else yeah. the, the system says well i have a 95 percent conf, uh, confidence level that it's it's at this point and wow. all he's doing is throwing in pictures so um it's it's pretty fantastic and i think once we have the ability for that program to start measuring things and really taking those yeah. things in because really by putting in those points and telling it well it's a this it's an adina point or it's a something like that um it's uh it's still using our interpretations to influence the AI. <laughs> it's yeah. not, we're not putting in data, we're putting in our interpretations. So, Stephen, you had a comment. Yeah, um, and, and I saw saw that being talked about. Um, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's cool. Um, and, and there have been database programs that walk you through the decision-making matrix uh, before. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, um, I remember one back in the 90s where, yeah, it was a bunch of radials and, and you checked the attributes that that fit and then they give you you know a best fit of what the types would be um yeah the, the problem with those um if there is a problem I, one I, I think it's it's cool um especially from a quick and easy thing to to toss out there but at the same time a lot of the attributes aren't necessarily going to be shown you know picked up in a photo right it's like basal mm-hmm. grinding yeah. is it basal grinding and, and you know, right um you know, so so, and and sometimes that that is the defining characteristic between two types. You know, one type has basal grinding, the other one probably doesn't. And and, uh, you know, the the other thing is it, it it relies on types as we're already thinking about it, right? Like so, you're you're just mm-hmm. you know giving the you know the weirdness of like your your two types of types, you know, the Elko and whatever that other one was, um, <laughs> and and. You know, likewise, uh, you know, like any 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 types like that. You know, without knowing what the defining characteristics are, or you know, even like how these types get defined. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I I think it's it it can potentially be a little misleading. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, on the other hand, this it probably is doing what ninety percent of us are doing. Um, you know, if you find a projectile point, like, oh, hey, this looks like an Elko point, you know. Um, yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. So yeah. You, That's exactly what it's doing. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. And, and we're already doing it and we probably shouldn't be doing it. Um, <laughs> True. Uh, uh, you know, what might be more interesting, though, is, you know, like you were talking about with you know your big data idea and, and stuff like that is, is to mm-hmm. bring it back and, and 
do, you know, the clusters of, um, you know, those very attributes um, and, and relationships that, you know, between those types of points. Um, and then you see that you see that a lot, I think, with, you know, like uh, grad uh, dissertations and theses and stuff like that, that, you know, that's what mm -hmm. people do. They go out and they look at like, you know, a hundred points of, uh, you know, one type and a hundred points of, an, of, of a very similar type and, you know, try to kind of suss out differences and then write it up. And um, a lot of times, you know, it ends up in a conference paper and then gets ignored until like another student does it. <laughs> um, and, you yeah. Know, uh, so yeah. I, I think in, in some ways it'd be nicer just to get that kind of information out and, and figure out like, how can we yeah. figure out those differences, you know, in that are meaningful in interpretation in a way that we can apply it, uh, you know, as, as being, you know, our, our, you know, tick box archeology span that we do for CRM. Yeah. You know, we're out there. It's, yeah. it's like, you know, we've got a list of tick boxes. Okay. Is it this kind of point? Is it that kind of point? <laughs> right. You know, or is it under the untyped other? Um, <laughs> well, and like a lot of things that we do in the field, especially field recording, mm. the reason we don't do some of the things we probably should do is because it takes too long. Yeah. So if we were, if we had a site with a whole bunch of projectile points, I mean, nobody's nobody's going to spend the time because we don't have the time, we don't have the money yeah. or the time to sit there and record 65 different attributes about this point, you know, all these <laughs> angles and the radials and things like that. Um, and this isn't a new concept either. Um, the first paper... I can think of that's famous because well, a lot of people out here in the Great Basin know about it is the Gatecliff Shelter um, paper that David Hurst Thomas wrote back Ooh. in what is that like 80, 81, something like that? Something like Maybe that. Maybe even the late 70s. I, it's around that time frame. Yeah. And that's where I mean like most of our central Nevada types are from is Gatecliff Shelter and because he found so many things going so, going so deep and he's got those angles. He's got those angles in that paper. He's got, you know, this the angle between the center line and the and the 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 midpoint of the of the notch, you know, that's a thing. That's called a, that's yeah. a thing. And I don't know well enough to just be able to spout it off either, because I've never recorded that stuff. I've I've done it sometimes in a lab setting, but in CRM, we almost never take the time to do that. So I think you're just matching stuff up to your um, cheat sheet. Basically, yeah, we're yeah. doing exactly what we've been talking about. We're making an interpretation, yeah. and um, I don't know how this has anything to do with what we've been talking about the whole episode. But anyway, it's a great discussion to have. Um, but, and, and this is this is leading into actually what I want to say. So it's good. So I'm going to continue on this thread. But the point is, even as archaeologists out in the field, we're not going to collect this stuff and bring it back into the lab, right? Most of the time. So we need a way, and the public needs a way, to do yeah. this sort of detailed, at least morphological analysis like like steven said it'd be hard for somebody or a computer program or somebody that doesn't know what they're looking at to say is there basal grinding on this is there you know this fine you know these other details that we just can't see with a photograph like a, an average photograph or by looking at it um that being said however we can record a lot of information i mean there's plenty of app, apps out there right now that do this with plants and things where it, it it will take like leaf snap i've talked about a lot of times it's still out there plant net i think is another one that works on Android. And, um, but basically they do, they do just that. They are doing a visual analysis, but they're, they're taking the item and they're making a high contrast version of it. So you can just look at the shape basically. And if you can look at the shape and maybe if we can invent an application where 
somebody can take a projectile point, let's just say it's just for points. Somebody can okay. take that point and line it up with a template on the screen yeah. that says, hey, put the put the tip here if you have one, put the base here if you have one, yeah. you know, and, and then frame your, your photo in and out so that it kind of fits right there. And then take the picture and then the system can analyze yeah. that and then give you all those angles immediately. And not that the citizen scientist or the public would ever care about that, but um, wherever that information goes, the big master database that this goes to, including its location, including the photograph, including any notes that the person wants to take about it, then we'll have all this stuff and we have it for free because the person didn't have to do anything for it. They just had to take a picture. And it would would work great for archaeologists as well because we'd have a lot more data that we just don't have because like Stephen said – our databases are just our interpretation. We never record those kind of attributes. We'll take a picture of it on a photographic <laughs> background, so maybe somebody can record those attributes from the photograph later on, yeah. but nobody does that realistically. No. So if we just had an automatic way to do it with an application that could take those measurements, maybe not all of them, maybe not all the information, we're never going to get all of it, yeah. but it's better than nothing. So, so yeah. we do that, have it for archaeologists and for citizen scientists, the, the sticky part of all this, of course, is who gets that data? Who yeah. gets those data when, you know, this application is being used around the country? You know, if it's in, I don't know, Arkansas, and somebody picks us up, where does the information that they recorded in that application actually go? Does it go back to the company that has, that that owns that application? And then they say, okay, here's the Arkansas data set. Let's send that off to Shippo or send that off to whoever's. Yeah whoever's monitoring this thing, whatever agency, um, that, that's where it gets a little sticky. But I don't know. Stephen, what are your thoughts on, on in our last three or four minutes here on what we can do? Let's say the, the blank check question that Ira Flato does on Science Friday. Um, what would you do to help us uh, you know, with the public, whether it's not just, not just education, but something along the lines of something a little more proactive so they can help us collect data? Um, and, and feel like they're part of the solution. Hmm. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know that there's, um, you know, particularly for the time limit involved, um, really good time to, or, um, you know, um, good thing to say. Uh, it, yeah. Something that does come to mind is the, what, what is it? The portable antiquities. Uh, Scheme. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and you know we should I think we've already done a show on that but we should probably done do another show on that. Uh, we've definitely talked about it because I really like it. I think it's got a lot of potential. And it, and it, and um, it's weird it, because on the one hand, things are getting you know like some people are like yes we're recording a bunch of stuff that never would have been recorded and it's great in that respect. And on the other hand, um, there is. I've seen some argument, and I haven't really looked at it too closely, um, but I've seen some argument that the popularity of, uh, of essentially looting m- might be going up because the portable antiquity scheme is is legitimizing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, oh, well, I, this is cool now. So, and 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 I don't know, you know, I I don't know if if. You know where the where the actual truth lies uh, between the two of those things. So, you know, right. um, I, I think it would be really cool to get um, not just one guest, but maybe a couple of guests. You know, on, on you know a, a pro and a con, 
uh, the uh, mm-hmm. uh, digital antiquity scheme and, and, you know, talk about that a bit more. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, that to a certain extent, and, and I, I think that this already happens is that archaeologists go out and they look at collections and they record what they can. And, and that, that ends up, you know, uh, at least at like the site level ends up, you know, sometimes being incorporated in the state level, um, you know, site databases and, and stuff like that. Is, is that enough? Is that is, right. you know, what more can we do? Um, I, I think the, uh, you know, using, using the cloud in a way that gets used for marketing um, is, is uh, mm-hmm. I like that idea. Um, you know, bring, bringing in data that way, I, I think that would be really cool. I, I guess it kind of depends on, you know, what's, what's being gleaned. Is it good enough? Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and, and it kind of comes down to the, you know, I guess the, uh, the context of where those, you know, recordings are coming from, you know, if, if, it's, if right. it's a plowed field where there is no intact subsoil, um, then, you know, any, any data recorded off the artifacts is going to be great because it's better than, you know, the site's already destroyed. Right. Um. Uh, right. On the other hand, if, if people are going in and, and digging in and, and you know, or, or, you know, it's a surface scatter, for, um, you know, just mm-hmm. naturally a sur- surface scatter, um, you know, that's not necessarily helping much. Um, and I mean, I, we could do an entire season of episodes <laughs> on this, and, and I don't think there's any really good, you know, I don't think there's one right way. To, mm-hmm. to answer this sort of thing that it still comes down to context like you said because even if uh, i just saw a picture just yesterday on facebook from somebody that i follow who um not a professional archaeologist uh, but he had a picture up of him standing in a plowed field somewhere in the midwest and uh and he said you know about to do some great field walking for arrowheads in a plowed field because in his estimate it's a plowed field and you can't you know they're they're already out of context but even to an archaeologist the context of just being in that um even in the county you know might be significant the the context of just being in that area in that field to begin with because the projectile point is probably not too far from where it was dropped not too far from where the site was destroyed could have been dragged all the way across the field probably wasn't probably was only dragged a few feet maybe as the plow went over 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 you know over the past hundred years but still came from that field yeah that's not disputed so that context is still important and that's the kind of thing that the public i think in most cases because it's our fault they just don't get that you know they don't understand that that's actually uh that's important i mean even if even if somebody just told me the county they found something in here in Nevada, that would still be more significant yeah. than just showing me the point with no information. You know, even though the counties here are the size of some U.S. states. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, that's all the time we have. So uh, leave your comments, please. Uh, tell us what you think about this. Tell us what uh, – if you're an archaeologist, tell us your thoughts on how we can help the public and yeah. how we can – uh, do these things. I'm really interested in creating an archaeological crime scene and and having yeah. that as a public outreach event, especially here in Reno, where we have a lot of outdoor events over the summer, and we could just set up a tent and create a crime scene for education. Well, that's part of art, you know. Town. Yeah, totally. So, um, but yeah, leave your comments and leave your leave your solutions. More uh, more importantly, uh, we, all we hear are problems most of the time. I want to hear solutions. We want looters to leave any comments. I I, I want everyone's opinion. 
I want everyone's opinion. And not well, and let's not call them looters. Looters, I feel like, are a very special class of people that go out for profit. They go out yeah, to true. find stuff to sell, right? Yeah, that's absolutely. a looter. Um, I don't want to call the average person that finds something in a in a field or in a on a hike out in the Great Basin a looter because they don't know they're looting, right? So yeah. they're not being a looter in that particular sense. They're just not. They're not aware of why they, you know. Do we want collectors then to comment? Well, kind of one and the same. If you're doing it purposefully, I feel like you know what you're doing. If you're doing it opportunistically, <laughs> that's a different thing entirely. So, all right. Well, like Steven said, this could be a whole bunch more topics, but we're going to cut it off right here. So, again, leave your comments and uh, tell us what we're doing right. Tell us what we're doing wrong. Tell us what yeah. you would do. All right. Thanks for that. And uh, see you next time. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Podcast. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode. You can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag CRMARCpodcast or you can tag at ARCpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to the show wherever you saw it. If you share CRM archaeology-related items on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else for that matter, be sure to use the hashtag CRMARC so the community can see and comment. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Yeah, bye. Bye. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.